This is Undark. We're a new magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to episode 10. I'm David Corcoran. Our cover story is not for the squeamish. We're going to talk about parasites, creatures with names like hookworm and flatworm and whipworm, worms that might actually be beneficial for human health. Joining us is reporter Leah Schaefer. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. So, okay, I have to admit, this is a new word for me. Helminth, what does it mean? Um, it's kind of like what you just said. They're uh, flukes, tapeworms, uh, nematodes. It's just a general term for that group of parasitic worms. I always thought that parasites were bad for you, uh, but you make it clear that the story is a lot more complicated. Can you talk about the age-old relationship between helminths and humans? So up until maybe the last century, humans have always kind of coexisted with parasites. And it's true that I'm, parasites are can be very bad. They can kill you, like in the case of malaria. But other worms evolved to just live with us. Um, they evolved in a way to manipulate our immune system so that they don't get kicked out of our bodies. And so this has gone on for thousands of years. And then recently, we basically, you know, we did kick them out. And so the idea is that maybe our immune system is used to having them. And it, these, these worms um, might have a job in our body and partner with our immune system to sort of function properly. They call it the hygiene hypothesis or the old friends hypothesis. So basically, they're, these worms are our old friends, or at least some of them were. But you're talking about parasites, and some really intriguing research has been done on the possible role of these parasites in staving off immune system disorders like inflammatory bowel disease. Can you tell us about some of the scientists who've been studying this? How did they get the idea in the first place? It started, some of the scientists were sort of adventurous parasitologists. They decided to just see what it was like to infect themselves with parasites. And there was this hygiene hypothesis has been around for decades. So this whole idea that maybe we still need these worms or microbes has, has been around. So the scientists have been kicking around this idea. And then in the 1990s, there were some gastroenterologists at the University of Iowa, um, including a man named Joel Weinstock, who he and with some colleagues, they wanted to actually see what would happen if they could bring back the parasitic worms to humans and see if it could treat inflammatory bowel disease. And they wanted to do this, but they had the question of, you know, how do you do it safely? Because again, it's it's a parasite, it's an infection. You know, how do you just put it back in a human without it replicating? And so they started to look around. They met uh, with a, a USDA microbiologist named Joe Urban. And uh, he said, why don't you try some well, worms that are adapted for pigs and they won't live long in humans. And he knew about this, be again, because some parasitologists had tried it out on themselves. Um, I guess these are just scientists that are willing to uh, have a little adventure. So <laughs> if you want to call that. So anyways, they knew these these worms would be kicked out of the body within two weeks. So they said, let's let's try it with these pig whipworms. And this is how it kind of got started. And how did they do the research? You, you mentioned they got these uh, parasites out of pigs, wouldn't live long in the human body. But like, how did they study this? Well, they just gave it to humans. They, they isolated the, the worm eggs and then they, they started like safety trials. So just like maybe 10 patients who had Crohn's disease, they gave them this little shot glass. Basically, it's like a little preserved liquid with the, the eggs, the whipworm eggs in it. 
And the first trials, they were just seeing what would happen if they if the people took that and if there were any downsides, any side effects, what would happen if it improved their symptoms, if it was safe. And so they kind of went from there. Now, as the science has progressed, they've actually been able to study a little bit more about what the worms are actually producing. So they actually put the worms in a dish. This is a different scientist. I'm talking about Alex Lucas. He's another scientist who's been studying these worms lately. And so basically he puts the worms and he, he collects their excretions. And so they produce like these little, this little liquid or something that contains so many proteins. He described it as like a buffet of, of molecules that are all sort of these anti-inflammatory proteins. And so they're trying to sort of understand what the worms do. But basically they, they could see that the worms were in the human gut and they're, they're sitting there eating, but they're also producing this signal, these, these proteins that basically tell the immune system it's all cool, you know, relax just settle down. And then, so that's the kind of where they've been going from here. You mentioned Crohn's disease. What is that? Um, yeah, the, the inflammatory bowel disease that includes Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And so these are autoimmune disorders where the immune system basically attacks the lining of the, the intestine, human intestine. And Crohn's, it's usually the small intestine and colitis, it's the large intestine, the colon. So it's for people who have this, it's you. There's a variety of symptoms. Some people, it's pretty mild, and they can go about their lives. Other people have it, can't eat hardly. They can't keep weight on. They bleed. It's it's a very unpleasant illness. There was quite a lot of excitement, I guess, uh, going back to the 1990s, uh, about the prospects of these uh, helminth treatments for these very uh, painful or disabling conditions. What were the treatments, and what happened when when they were studied? Um, the main treatments studied were the inflammatory bowel diseases. I believe there's been some research on MS, multiple sclerosis, and I think that's it. Formally, it's been the, yeah, inflammatory bowel disease is the main one they've been looking into. So they started large um, clinical trials in 2011, and it was headed up by two large pharmaceutical companies, one in Europe and one in the United States. And they had a total of about 500 patients. And these were people with Crohn's disease. And in this case, it, it, just like the original study, they were taking the whipworm eggs. These were the pig whipworm eggs. And so they would take these eggs every two weeks. And it was basically like, yeah, it's a little glass, a liquid glass. They would take it. And then it would, they just were seeing how they reacted to that. And then, uh, but then the, they never published the data, which is never a good sign in clinical trials. They did release an abstract at a conference that basically said that the results were not significant compared to placebo. Um, and there were some news releases and sort of biotech news magazines that said they had a very high placebo response. So the whole thing kind of just got squashed and no other pharmaceutical companies are really pursuing it right now. So this was a big disappointment in the field. And obviously, uh, if the uh, pharmaceutical companies aren't going to pay for the research. Uh, it's going to be much harder to do the research. But there's still plenty of interest in the subject, isn't there? How come? There is a lot of interest because people sort of have been dosing themselves with parasites ever since the, the research kind of came to the forefront in the late 90s. And they have like a Facebook group where they can share all their knowledge. It's, it's kind of this close-knit community of people who say, you know, we've been doing this. It's worked for us. And we're just going to keep doing this. And here are ways that you can find some parasitic worms. And this is how you how you do it. And so these are other people with autoimmune disorders, sometimes lupus, MS, 
the IBD and, and people who are suffering and they nothing's worked. A lot of them on, are on their last legs. I mean, they, they it's kind of like their last ditch effort. And so they, again, it's a close knit group. And so this this group said, you know, this trial failed because they didn't do it right. They didn't use the right uh, whatever uh, liquid to preserve the eggs. They think the eggs were kind of like not the best quality. So there were there there's various information that they were sharing back and forth. We were like, well, it was basically bungled and we're just going to keep doing our thing. So people are desperate is what it comes down to. And from what I've read, you know, there isn't a huge downside to trying the worms. And when it works for people, it works really well. I've talked to people who have their lives have been saved and changed in some cases. So the there's a big upside and not a huge downside other than it's kind of weird and hard to get and gross. But this community is very close knit and they encourage each other and they continue to grow because the current regimen of drugs for autoimmune problems are not like really great. They're not a silver bullet. People suffer. So they'll try anything. Uh, now we come to the first person part of your story. You call yourself a helminth hacker. Uh, tell us about your experience. Yeah, um, I also have I have uh, IBD, ulcerative colitis. Um, I was diagnosed last year. Um, it runs in my family. So I'd been thinking about this for a while. And so I, I got on the typical drugs. My doctor prescribed me typical drugs, uh, which are anti-inflammatories. And they you know, it was okay for a little bit, but then I didn't stay in remission. My symptoms like flared up again. And so I said, why not try this? Um, so I tried the, the pig whipworm eggs, which you can buy online. And uh, I tried that for about six months. And it didn't seem to make a big difference one way or the other. Um, during that six months, I was on other medications. Sometimes I had symptoms of IBD. Sometimes I didn't. It didn't seem to keep me in remission, at least the eggs alone. So I don't know. I, I, I decided to stop taking them mostly because I think they weren't like that effective for me. But I'm still uncertain I might try something else, uh, another type of worm in the near future to see how that works. Um, for some people, they think maybe you need a worm that's adapted to humans, maybe. I, I mean, with autoimmune problems, it's all very different based on the individual. So for some people, maybe these little worm eggs were sufficient. And for other people, they might need a full adult worm doing what it does. So I'm not discouraged. Where did you get the worm eggs that you used? I ordered them from a website called Tanawisa, and it's the same uh, entrepreneur who actually made the original eggs for all the scientific studies. So he produces them in Thailand, and he, he has a facility with, it's very clean, has, you know, sanitized, he uses pigs that are basically raised in sanitary conditions. And so it's, it's a kind of a professional manufacturing facility. And so he um, is just kind of continuing to do what he has done, and he sells it online. You just go online and you purchase it. You can read about all this in your Facebook group, and I, I'm sure it's reassuring to uh, hear from other people that they've uh, they've taken this product and and uh, it's safe and and maybe often helpful. Still, I have to say it takes a brave person to swallow parasite eggs. How did you bring yourself to do it? I'm not like a super squeamish person, obviously. And I, again, I'd, I'd seen the trials. You know, I read through the studies and saw that it was safe. You know, nobody had died from this. And, you know, I, I, I really don't think it's that gross. It's not, it's, again, it's like a little shot glass. You can't even see the more eggs. It's just kind of a salty liquid. And so it wasn't that scary. And I, you know, we're humans. We eat all sorts of gross stuff. We eat cheese, you know, that's just mold and yogurt. And so... I, I guess I'm, you know, since I am a science writer, I'm kind of already aware that, you know, we're not really pure beings. So <laughs> I was okay with it. 
So what do you think? Should we be hopeful about the potential of parasites to treat human diseases? Would you expect to see something like this on the market in the next few years? I think people can be hopeful. It, it takes a while. There might be a chance that these pig whipworm eggs could be something you could buy over the counter, like a probiotic. The guy who produces them, he is trying to get it approved first in Europe as, as basically kind of like a supplement is treated here. It's just something people can buy. Um, there aren't a lot of regulations. So he's trying to get it through. So you just like you go to the medicine shop and buy probiotic or vitamin D, you could buy these little refrigerated um, glasses of worm eggs. That'd be interesting. But um, so that that could happen. And then, yeah, I think scientists are working to make a worm pill. So they're trying to take what these worms make and, and make a something that the pharmaceutical companies could sell or standardize. And so that that will probably happen. It may take a while. And I think people will just keep using the actual worms themselves. I, don't, I think that's just going to continue growing. And, and if it works for people, it's people are going to keep doing it. I think it'll be around and it'll help. Well, Leah Schaefer, this is an intriguing story, and uh, I wish you the best of health. Thanks, David. I'm doing good. Leah Schaefer writes about science for magazines and websites, including Wired, Discover, and The Atlantic. Her article for Undark about helminth hacking is now live on our homepage at undark.org. Seth Mnookin joins us now for our regular segment on science and the media. Seth, fake news. Apparently it isn't going away. Yes, apparently not. Uh, I guess given how much it seems to have come into play for the election, it was silly of us or of people to think that it, it might die down. Although I think there was some possible, I don't know about expectation, but maybe fantasy that given that the election is now over, the sort of torrent of fake news that we had been seeding would recede somewhat. But that does not appear to be the case. There's all kinds of fake news. Um, you know, the most famous recent example, I guess, being the child sex slave ring that was uh, being conducted in a pizza parlor in northwest Washington. Uh, what about science? How does, uh, how does science news enter into this? Well, one of the interesting things about the news atmosphere at the moment for science is that I think science journalists at present are really struggling to figure out how to cover and deal with the new administration. You know, it, since we last spoke, Trump has appointed a number of people in positions like the head of the EPA, where the people that he's appointing have come on record is saying that they don't accept the the overwhelming scientific consensus about things like climate change. And so I think we get into two different categories of sort of fake news. You have the fake news of the type that you were referencing where, where someone wrote online that there was a child sex ring operating out of a pizza store in conjunction with the Clintons, and that resulted in, in a gunman actually going to the store. And then you have a, a sort of somewhat more subtle fake news or perhaps just a, a legitimizing of of really fringe viewpoints. Although I guess once you have these viewpoints being represented in cabinet positions, I'm, I'm not sure if you can call them fringe anymore. So, and the reason why I say it puts science journalists in a really tricky and tough position is because 
I think all American journalists or most American journalists like to view themselves as operating from a stance of sort of objectivity. You know, that that's not the model everywhere. It's not the model in Western Europe, but it is the model here. So we don't want to we don't want to be oppositional to one or another political party or president or presidential candidate, but it's hard to figure out how to deal with a now president elect and and cabinet members who just you know look at facts and refuse to accept them i'm struck by the uh number of people in the uh transition uh who are connected with the fossil fuel industry in one way or another uh you have the new EPA administrator who uh who's the attorney general in in Oklahoma, Oklahoma right. yeah who's done uh, a considerable amount of carrying of water on behalf of the fossil fuel industry and then you have the secretary of state designate who is the uh chief executive of of ExxonMobil where should uh, science journalists be training their sites as we get ready to enter this new administration? Well, I think a, a couple of interesting things to look at is, is one, what's going on at the sort of level of career employees? Trump, the Trump administration tried to get names of people who were working on uh, issues involving climate change uh, at the EPA. It looks like he will not be successful there. That's a, that's just a, a stunning request. And, and the implication is that if you were doing your job and doing it accurately, there's a chance that there will be some retribution depending on who's in office. So I think paying attention to what's going on at the level of career employees is important. I think also one thing that is going to be really interesting and, and that hopefully journalists will uh, look at and pay attention to and focus on is pushing the rest of the GOP on some of these issues involving science. You know, it, it was not that long ago that needing to do something about climate change was not a one-party issue. It was something that both parties worked on across the aisle. You know, George H.W. Bush made that very clear. That has since obviously shifted to some extent, but it has never shifted to the extent that the Trump administration seems to be threatening. And so I think science journalists and political journalists would be well served to sort of push the rest of the GOP and, you know, like Speaker Ryan and find out really where they fall on these issues. Because, you know, we're seeing the effects of climate change. Um, Hurricane Sandy did not just come and affect people who voted Democratic. People who live along the Florida coastline are being affected regardless of what political party they're in. So I think it would be, obviously, I think it would be a mistake from a scientific standpoint, but I think it would also be a mistake from a political standpoint for an entire party to sort of uh, abandon science. So in a way, this uh, could shape up as a kind of golden age for science journalists if they just uh, focus on what people in Washington are saying, uh, as opposed to what people in the science community are saying. Seems like there would be a lot of stories there. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, I do think that it puts science journalists, uh, you know, obviously I'm speaking with incredibly broad strokes here and it's never fair to do that. So with that caveat, I will now go ahead and do that. 
uh, you know, science journalists' relationship to our sources and to the stories that we write about are not the same as a political reporter's relationship with his or her sources. And this is a tension that exists in science journalism. You know, how much are science journalists and the people that we cover sort of on the same side, which is the the side of science? And how much should that be a more sort of traditionally adversarial relationship? There are obviously a lot of great investigative science reporters. A lot of great work has been done explicitly and specifically on ExxonMobil. And, and I should highlight inside climate news here. But I think that to continue to do our jobs the way that we should, we are going to need to probably end up in a more confrontational stance than as a whole we might be used to. And I think it's important to remember that our ultimate goal and the job that we're supposed to do is convey as accurate a picture of reality to the public as possible. And, you know, the way that we go about that is is looks like it will probably change over the next couple of years. You mentioned inside climate news. Um, I'm going to venture to guess that at least some of our listeners don't even know what that is. I, I mean, 10 years ago, you had the New York Times and the Washington Post and cable news programs and the network news programs. But you didn't have things like inside climate news. What What is that? Inside Climate News is a relatively small operation, uh, relatively small and relatively new. I, I, they've, I think, I believe they've been around for somewhere shy of a decade, but they, they've you know been around for a couple of years now, and with really a handful of reporters, have for years now been doing remarkable, remarkable work. They won a Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago, which for an outfit with maybe a dozen journalists is is really astounding. They uh, were really the lead news organization on the reporting that ExxonMobil actually their own research indicated that fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry was was contributing or causing climate change and so a, a decades ago and then they went on to uh, deny that and say that that wasn't true so you know i mean in in some ways you can look at outlets like inside climate news as a, a sort of counter narrative to the fact that at a lot of metro dailies at a lot of glossy magazines and, and and a lot of news programs, specialized science reporters are losing their jobs and as opposed to getting hired. But the reality of the situation is that even with the amazing work that Inside Climate News does, they do not have the reach of CNN or the New York Times. And I hope everyone listening to this searches them out and and, and reads them. But you know, my, my fear is when we started out talking about fake news is that even that really great reporting can sort of get obscured in the cacophony of stories of, of, of dubious provenance. Seth Manukin is the author of a number of books about science and journalism, and he's director of the graduate program in science writing at MIT. He joins us regularly on the podcast. Seth, as always, thanks. Now sit back, relax, and listen. Does gentle whispering make your brain tingle? 
Does watching someone unwrap a parcel give you shivers from your head down through your spine? Do you feel a wave of well-being wash over you as you watch someone paint a landscape on a canvas? If so, you're experiencing a phenomenon called ASMR, Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Look it up online and you'll find a whole world of videos and forums devoted to it. Molly Siegel has more. When I got the email from my boyfriend, I was confused. It was a link to a YouTube video. It's titled Unboxing Lego Architecture. This is a video of someone unwrapping a parcel, a box of Lego they've received in the mail. To me, it's as boring as the description sounds, but my boyfriend describes it as pure bliss. When he puts headphones on to listen to a trigger video like this parcel one, the sound sort of will start in my, say for example, my right ear. And that sort of translates into almost like this electric feeling that ripples across my scalp. Slowly these sounds sort of start to culminate until eventually my whole scalp feels like it's lit up, like there's this electric sort of very low volt charge that sort of ripples across the whole thing. And then it puts me into this very relaxed state. And he's not the only one who likes or even obsesses over these videos. This parcel video, it has more than 100,000 views. Even before my boyfriend discovered the term ASMR, he remembers getting brain tingles as a kid. Anytime there was like an arts and craft time, cutting construction paper and like the class would be quiet and it would trigger that response. So the day he emailed me that parcel video, that day he was at work when a colleague whispered something to him. He got the brain tingles, so he Googled it. And that's when this online world opened up for him. It was like a way to quantify something that I just thought that happened to everybody, but it obviously didn't. Different ASMR videos are designed with different triggering sounds or experiences. Okay. A first-person view of a visit to the eye doctor, the clicking of lenses during the refraction test, the sound of scissors around your head at a barbershop, soft whispering in your ear. There's this huge community online, but is there any science to help explain what these people experience? I visited St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto, where I met Dr. Luis Fornasari, a consultant behavioral neurologist. But it's clear that it's in an area that is still in the, in the early stages. Fornasari hasn't conducted his own studies on ASMR, but he does see some similarities between ASMR and synesthesia, a neurological phenomenon that crosses connections in your brain, creating different experiences of the senses. So you might experience a number as a color, for example. Fornasari thinks ASMR is similar. It's a sensory experience. The different sensory stimulus are triggering totally different responses. There's not much research about ASMR, but there is a peer-reviewed study by Emma Barrett and Nick Davis published in March 2015. The study gives some insight into why many people watch online ASMR trigger videos. It turns out many of the people who responded say they use those videos to manage their anxiety. But I also wanted to see if any researchers are using brain imaging to figure out the neuroscience behind it all. My name's Steve Smith. Then I found Stephen Smith, an associate professor of psychology at the University of Winnipeg. My area of research interest is the neuroscience of emotion. Smith and his team scanned the brains of 12 people in their default states. Half of them experience ASMR and half don't. Neurons are firing, sending signals in your brain at all times. 
The fMRI scans show Smith which areas of the brain are active depending on what someone is doing. Groups of neurons in different brain areas tend to fire at the same frequency, suggesting that they're working together as a team, which we would call a neural network. In most brains, we have a number of distinct teams that allow us to do different functions. So, imagine a network of neurons firing together all over the brain. That's team A, and it's the default state Smith measured. What seems to happen in people with ASMR is that instead of having these distinct teams, there's a lot of uh, crosstalk between the teams. So in the brains of people who experience ASMR, Team A is also firing with members of Team B, a part of the brain that controls attention, and Team C, which controls areas related to vision. Now, Stephen Smith's research team wants to know if there are any differences among people who experience ASMR. So not all ASMR people have the same triggers that will set them off and give them the tingling sensations. In his next phase of research, he'll use fMRIs to look at those different triggers. Do whispering and tapping sounds activate different parts of the brain? He wants to find out. Because I think that there's probably a number of subtypes of ASMR. While his study has grown to 17 people who experience ASMR and 17 people who don't, it's a small start to a phenomenon that seems to affect at least hundreds of thousands of people. Looking at the online community, it seemed like such a large group of people that were really interested in their own experiences and they didn't have any answers. It feels kind of cool to start giving people answers to these questions. And it makes me wonder what people did before the internet and if they thought that they had something wrong with them or if they thought they had some sort of secret gift. Could someone like me, someone who hasn't experienced an ASMR response, ever have this feeling? My boyfriend and I gave it one last shot. Yeah, th this, this is, this is tremendous. I put on headphones, I close my eyes, and he plays me this video by someone who calls himself Dr. Dimitri. Essentially, the guy has a bar of soap with some plastic packaging on it, it looks like, and he's sort of moving it in front of or around a special microphone that creates like a 3D experience when you have headphones on. I don't think this is going to do anything for me. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Dimitri. For Undark, I'm Molly Siegel. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.